everybody. I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we are exploring some of the wild and wacky ways in which whales feed. And that's the best alliteration I can do because there's no synonym for feed that starts with a W. No, you're so close. (laughs) I was so close. Plus a whale tale from the prey's point of view. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. So today we, as mentioned, are going to be talking about whale feeding tactics, but there are lots of ways in which cetaceans find food and we could not possibly include all of them in a podcast that aims to be between half an hour and an hour long. So we're going to be narrowing down our focus to specifically baleen whales and how they hunt and find prey today. And if you wanted to read a really great article because you are disappointed right off the bat in our podcast, first of all, sorry, that we're not going to be talking about, you know, some of the crazier ways that, oh, let's say killer whales hunt, because that's usually what I think of when I think about cetacean feeding. We actually have a link in the show notes to a spectacular full article again i'm always so so excited when i find full articles that gives a great overview about the feeding strategies and tactics of all marine mammals including our equally awesome but not part of the whale tails family pinniped and polar bear friends you can check that out it's called feeding strategies and tactics by michael Heathus, I think, and Lawrence Dill, and it is a really interesting art. Yeah, I know those guys. One of them was my uh, thesis supervisor, and the oh. other one is the guy who started Shark Bay. What? <laughs> I had no yeah. idea. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> small, knew? small world in marine biology. Indeed. So before we get started, let's clear up some terminology. Often, we tend to use the terms feeding strategy and feeding tactics interchangeably, but as students of ecology, there is actually a difference between the two. Strategy is an overarching plan or set of goals, and tactics are the specific actions or steps you undertake to accomplish your strategy. So to give an example, a a humpback whale feeding strategy is they want to maximize energy intake. And the whale does this by switching between tactics used to catch small fish and tactics used to catch krill, depending on the relative abundance of those two kinds of prey. So basically what we're actually exploring today is feeding tactics um, rather than feeding strategy. And since we are focusing on baleen whales, let's also just take a moment to talk about the mechanics involved in baleen whale feeding. Baleen whales, by nature of their name, have baleen instead of teeth. So to imagine what the mouth of a baleen whale looks like if you have never actually seen one. Basically, picture your own mouth (laughs) and then replace all of your teeth on the top part of your mouth, on your top jaw, with combs or weird, hairy, I don't know, I always think about like... dryer lint or the thing in uh when you empty your vacuum cleaner like that's what baleen kind of reminds me of i'm not sure why because it's not soft no it's not I like 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 car wash yeah car wash hanging down yeah yes so imagine replacing all of the teeth on your top jaw with car wash strips i love that analogy Lindsay. that was great and then just get rid of all of your bottom teeth Baleen whales do not have baleen on the bottom. They only have it on the top and it hangs down in plates. So 
uh, often when I was younger and I hadn't actually seen Baleen for the first time, I imagined it as just like one long kind of like singular thing of baleen around their top jaw with lots of hairy bits hanging down, but it's actually like there's there can be hundreds of different plates of baleen in succession along their top jaw. And the frilly, hairy, food catchy bits are on the inside closer to their tongue. Speaking of tongue, the tongue is a, almost as important to baleen whales as the baleen itself because the tongue is in most baleen whales what will keep the water that's in their mouth from going down their throat and will kind of funnel that water out in various ways that we will talk about. So a baleen wheel needs baleen. It needs a very big, very strong tongue. And though we will talk about lots of different tactics they use to manage their hunting, the kind of very, very base plan is water with food in it goes into their mouth the food gets caught in the baleen and the water goes out of their mouth. And then again, using that tongue, they swipe the food off of the baleen and yum, they are full. So there are three distinct physiological ways in which baleen whales feed. Continuous ram filter feeding used by bowhead and right whales. Intermittent intermittent ram filter feeding or lunge feeding used by rorqual whales and suction feeding used by gray whales. So we're going to talk about gray whales first because they're the only baleen whale that does this. Gray whales filter not just water but also the sediment of the seafloor for food. So they basically swim along really close to the like sandy sediment and they suck up mouthfuls of sediment and water and spit out everything but their prey. So they're basically looking for tiny amphipods or like little shrimp-like animals that live inside that sediment. Um, Along with those amphipods they'll also get uh, crustaceans, isopods, mycids, any anything else that they that happens to be in the sediment. Uh, we're gonna at, like most of these. It's easier to see a video, so we're gonna put up a video for this one. It's a YouTube video where you can see how gray whales filter and sediment feed along the seafloor. It's so cool. Additionally, because gray whales end up doing this on their side rather than on their front so that they can actually like dig the side of their mouth into the sediment, researchers have discovered that gray whales have individual preferences about being right-handed or left-handed. So different individuals like to lean right or lean left, kind of like different people like to use their right hand or their left hand to, uh, or like if you're, if you snowboard or um, skateboard or anything like that, they usually, um, like somebody will push you from behind or whichever leg you put forward instinctively is the like foot you should put forward on your board um so it's kind of it's kind of similar to that um and that's it's neat that it's pretty like pretty consistent that uh whales will yeah like pick a pick a side and stick with it for their feeding crazy gray whales crazy gray whales yeah actually Lindsay and i've seen this happen right down the street from uh Mm -hmm. where we live there was a gray whale it uh right on the beach basically one day (laughs) yeah it was it was feeding so you could see all the sediment coming up and yeah making yeah. the water all murky and it was a beautiful sunsetty day. That was, mm-hmm. that was getting to be a long time ago, but that was great. Yeah, that it was, was great 20, 2015. Oh my gosh. So fun. Crazy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's pretty much the only cool thing about gray whales. No, oh. I'm kidding. I'm no. kidding. Rats I'm kidding. in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> we love gray whales. Um, and it is really interesting that they are the only baleen whale that does this. There mm-hmm. are other baleen whales that will, and other tooth whales actually, mm. that will eat the same sort of food that live in the seafloor. But they usually use kind of a jet propulsion or a spitting technique to get the sediment up and to then eat the food. Gray like whales are just more efficient. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is kind of weird. There's a lot of baleen whales, and there's smaller baleen whales than gray whales, so mm. it's not a size thing. Mm-mm. They're just unique. <laughs> Ugh. 
Yeah, there's something. <laughs> we just, we love them. Next, let's take a look at the continuous ram filter feeders, or the skimmers, as they're often called. These are the right whales, all varieties, and the bowhead whales. So the way that these baleen whales feed is, if you think about how a whale shark or a manta ray or a number of different filter feeding fish feed, they swim through the water column with their mouths open and they use sort of the momentum of their locomotion, the momentum of their swimming to just let the water pass over in those animals in rays and sharks and fish. It's their gill rakers that are actually filtering the plankton and other food out of the water column. But in the right whales and the bowhead whales, they use the same principle of motion, just continuous motion through a cloud of zooplankton or a cloud of krill. And in, they don't have gill rakers. So instead, if you think about the sort of distinct mouth shape of those whales, it's like, and that's where the bowhead gets its name. It's a bow as in a bow and arrow bow, not a bow you tie in a present. That is what I thought for a long time. Me too. Until there I was a while that I, that I thought it was a bow head because you never know how these things are going to oh, be pronounced. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. But they have that upside down U shape or an N, which is also, you know, but yeah, an upside down U shape. <laughs> not as if my name starts with that letter. Not as if you're trying to teach letters to a toddler <laughs> oh god it's so true um so they have that upside down u-shape and the reason that their mouths are shaped that way is because the bottom of the u closest to the rest of their body so furthest from the front of their body this is interesting to try and describe without a visual the widest the <laughs> widest part of the u yeah the, the two the, the two corners points. of their mouths yeah. yeah yes the the corner closer to their tail <laughs> is where the water filters out from just based on the shape of their mouths so as they're just swimming along la, 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 with their mouths open letting all of the yummy yummy krill get stuck on their baleen the water is again that tongue is keeping it from going down their esophagus and instead is filtering it out through what is technically called the posterior apparatus but basically is the back of their mouths so it's basically like the laziest way you can feed because you're just swimming forward and doing very minimal things. Yep. You just got to make sure that where you are swimming, there is some amount of food in the water. Yeah. And then cool. you'll be okay. Cool, cool, cool. Again, to describe this better than an upside down you, <laughs> there is a really, really fantastic, again, full article called How Baleen Whales Feed the Biomechanics and of Engulfment and Filtration. And this was done by Cascadia Research, and it is really good. It has lots of images and sort of technical drawings to look at the anatomy of baleen whales and how this all works, but also really, really cool visuals of the actual sort of progression of swimming through and how the water moves over. They're not gill rakers, how it moves through their mouth. <laughs> so if you aren't a gray whale or a bowhead or a right whale, but you're still a baleen whale, what are you? There's lots of different <laughs> ones, guys. You can just look at a poster. Um, so so if you are still a baleen whale, you are going to use a variety of different tactics under the umbrella of lunge feeding. Um, and this is uh, a two-step process that begins with the engulfment of a large volume of prey-laden water, like everybody else, um, during a, but this is during a high velocity lunge and ends with the purging and filtration of water out of the distended cavity. That's very highfalutin language. 
um, for basically you take a big jump, but not a breach. Still, the, you still gotta have that water in your mouth level. And you open your mouth real big, and all the water comes in, and then you filter it out. This is why we don't write scientific articles. <laughs> um, so these uh, these types of baleen whales are called rorquals, and they have a number of adaptations for lunch feeding, including expandable gullular plates? Gullular mm-hmm. plates? I don't know. Uh, and a lower jaw that can disarticulate uh, from the upper jaw like a snake, uh, and <laughs> that allows them to engulf... Huge volumes of water and prey in each feeding attempt. It's super crazy if you get to watch the bo- the ways that their bodies change in these whales as they feed. Um, so if you want to watch a video, there's a really great National Geographic video of a blue whale lunge feeding. Oh my gosh, so cool! Oh, it's so you just cool. see like the yeah those like pleats. Oh man, crazy, crazy. There are lots of different tactics that baleen whales will use while lunge feeding, including uh, most of them are used to kind of herd the food together. So obviously, again, going back to that strategy of the most caloric intake for the least amount of effort, you don't want to be going around just getting one herring at a time with your lunge feeding. And so some of the ways that they'll herd prey together is by slapping their tails or their pectoral fins, doing a behavior called flashing. This is We talked about this in a previous episode about the fin whale when we were talking about why they have two different colored jaws. So on one side, they have a darker jaw and on the other side, they have a lighter jaw. This is thought to help with flashing. So some small schooling fish potentially get scared into a small ball when they flash up the bright side of their body at them. Any other kind of herding behaviors, circling or also potentially using sound is a way that baleen whales can kind of herd their prey together. But the two particularly fascinating tactics that we wanted to talk about today are used by humpback whales. They are both used by humpback whales right here along our coastline in British Columbia, though at different parts of the coastline because currents definitely impact the the reliability of these feeding tactics, as we'll say. And Lindsay, I'll let you introduce the first one. So the first one is probably something you've heard before if you follow us or follow any kind of whale social media, especially for humpbacks, and that is bubble net feeding. Uh, so all around the world, humpbacks, usually three or more, swim below a school of fish and then blow a cloud of bubbles. These bubbles panic the fish, which prompts them to cluster into a tight ball, similar to what Nick was just talking about. Uh, And then the whales swim right through the ball with their mouths open, gulping fish-filled water. And again, we have another video for you that you can watch, and it's really awesome, and it's absolutely incredible to see something like this. What I thought was really cool when I was researching for this episode was I had known about bubble netting for a long time and I always thought it was awesome, but I never thought there was much more to it than, hey, that's a really cool tactic that humpback whales came up with for corralling and catching fish. And then as I was digging deeper into it, it turns out that this is also an example of an evolving tactic that is transmitted and changed through humpback whale culture. So back in 1980, whale watchers saw one single humpback off of the east coast of the United States do a modified version of a bubble netting. Before it blew the bubbles, the humpback whale started slapping the water with its fluke, which is called tail lobbing. Then over the course of the next eight years, whale watchers observed more and more humpbacks starting to do this same tail lobbing prior to bubble blowing behavior. And they noticed it 
with enough frequency that they were reporting it to researchers. By 1989, almost 10 years later, nearly half of the population of humpback whales in that area were lobtailing the water before bubble netting. So this obviously was interesting for researchers and a biologist by the name of Luke Rendell at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland wondered why are they changing this behavior and why are they changing it with such frequency and consistency in this area? So what they found is that studying the diets of the humpback whales in the area, they actually weren't eating as many herring as they had been in the decades prior. The population of herring had changed and so the humpback whales were adapting to that and they were switching to a higher density of sand lance and even smaller fish in their diet. And the bubble netting was thought to not panic the sand lance as much as it would panic the herring. So the humpbacks had to incorporate the tail lobbing in order to really start bunching the sand lance together. And then the bubble netting kind of kept them in place. So then they could gorge themselves on sand lance by rising through the big bait ball of sand lance. This is crazy because over here on the west coast we've seen actually the reverse happen which is that we now have a huge increase in herring population in the pacific northwest and so we're actually seeing just an increase in generic it's not really generic an increase in original bubble netting i guess especially especially in the northern part of bc and alaska where more and more humpbacks and more and more numbers of humpbacks all together are bubble netting because the herring populations are doing so well as are the humpbacks hooray good news stories yay <laughs> so new tactics are also evolving in lunch feeders um as our friends up at the marine education research society have been studying uh they've, they've put out a really great um blog post and paper including a video called uh trap feeding a new humpback feeding strategy uh so this new strategy was first documented uh, for only two individuals around northeastern Vancouver Island in about two th 2011. And now we know that more than 20 different humpback whales have learned to sometimes use this tactic, uh, and they mainly use it on smaller, diffuse schools of juvenile herring. Uh, and basically how it works, um, check out the video for more details, but like a brief description is the humpback sort of hangs out at the surface with their mouth wide open, and the fish collect in or near the mouth of the humpback basically to escape predation by diving birds. So they like trick the juvenile fish into thinking that their giant mouth is a shelter to hide from birds. And then the humpbacks will spin or use their pectoral flippers to push fish into their mouth and then basically, and then squish the water out through their bailing. Close their mouth like a Venus flytrap. Yeah, yeah basically. basically. It's like they sit there, wait for the fish to like get really chill and then one sort of like swoop and close and yeah. It's uh, a really great low energy strategy yeah, for the humpback. This is the laziest type of feeding. <laughs> Basically, float at the surface, close mouth. Oh. <laughs> I mean, um, you gotta compare the two lazy versions because yeah. I mean, on the one hand, yes, the humpback yes. just hangs out with their mouth like ah yeah. for a really long time, but then they do have to exert a short burst of yeah, energy. Short burst of energy. It's a, whereas yeah. the and bowheads just like ah yeah. Also, the humpbacks are have to stay upright. They yes. can't uh, breathe mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at that time. So yeah, and yeah, so it's riskier because they like put in this time when they could be otherwise fishing, like um, doing other feeding. Yeah, other feeding. So they like 
put in this time with, with that has like a pretty risky like high energy behavior at the very end of it so yeah it is risky but um seems to be working for at least 20 of them up there um and yeah like mm-hmm. it's like i said at the beginning it's used mainly on the um when they are feeding on juvenile herring to sort of um, collect juvenile herring when they're smaller very cool it just it just sounds nice to just like lie in the water and have somebody put food in your mouth like i could, <laughs> I could go for that yep so it's like up. the greek gods with the grapes yeah. only it's yeah, a humpback exactly. whale and herring yeah yeah <laughs> um so anyway regardless of it it's super cool and i would love to be able to see that i've seen some lunch feeding but i haven't seen bubble netting um and obviously i've seen gray whales but i haven't seen right whales or bowheads either so one day one day we'll see them all, but again, when we're allowed not... to travel again. <laughs> yes, this is not every tactic used by baleen whales, let alone all cetaceans. Uh, so we're just going to have to keep talking about them in future episodes. And one of the ways that you can ensure that we have future episodes of our podcast is becoming a patron or a supporter of ours on Patreon. So before we continue with the rest of the episode, we just wanted to again thank our patrons so so much. We really are so both incredibly shocked and honored by the fact that you are supporting our podcast and everything that we do at whale tales sarah if people who are listening don't know what a patron is can you tell us yeah so patreon is a website at patreon.com p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com and it is a website where you can support your favorite creators in the work that they're doing for as little as a, a dollar a month and it helps uh, support what we do, and then you also get um, some fun special perks. So you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash whaletales. And we recently set up a couple of different tiers of uh, perks for different levels. Um, so we have three, and they're based on some fun naming techniques. <laughs> <laughs> so for $1 a month, or the porpoise level... Um, you get our weekly newsletter full of fun facts, and you also get to vote in our Fun Flipper Facts uh, polls, which we do every once in a while for upcoming episodes of this very podcast. Uh, for $5 a month, or the dolphin level, uh, you also get you get all of those. You get a discount on our awesome uh, merch that we have, and also you get an amazing watercolor postcard uh, painting of our logo, painted by our very own Nicole. Oh, Ooh. thanks. <laughs> And for $10 a month, or can you guess what it is? It's the whale level. What? (laughs) So clever. (laughs) You get all of those things, as well as an incredible watercolor painting of a whale, also by Nicole. And you get to produce an episode of the podcast, which means you get to choose the Fun Flipper Fact entirely. No voting in polls. It's entirely up to you, and we just have to go with what you say. So that's... (laughs) Please make sure it's cetacean based. Yes. (laughs) And we have some of those coming up over the next couple of episodes. So I am excited because you can make that fun flipper fact as obscure as you want. It's going to be fun. The reason that we are so just indebted to our patrons is because all three of us have full-time other jobs and we just happen to really, really love cetaceans, uh, as you probably do too if you're listening to our podcast, and also love spending time together. And this has become 
such an incredible labor of love for us, but it is something that all of us have to do off of the side of our desk, sometimes off the side, off the side, off the side of our desk. So whatever support you can throw us, whether it is $10 a month more, if you want, or if it is only a dollar a month, the, the amount doesn't matter. It's the fact that you're showing your support for this dream that we have and what we're doing. And it really just means the world to us. But we also know that times are weird and crazy and hard right now. So if that's not something that you can do financially, we completely understand. And we just love that you're listening to us. One of the things that would be really, really helpful that you could do, whether you can become a patron or not, is if you are able to leave us a rating for this podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you listen to us on, that's also really helpful because it helps to show other people what we're doing and helps other people find us. So thank you very much to our existing patrons. And thank you really to everybody who's listening. Indeed. Um, and yeah, like literally when we get a review, uh, usually Lindsay gets it and screenshots it and sends it to the rest of us. And we're just like the happiest, happiest little kids all day. It just totally makes our week. So yeah, it it's great. And it also yeah helps other people discover our podcast. So yay. More whale nerds. Yay. <laughs> Speaking of whale nerds, it's time for Nicole to do her favorite part. Fun flipper facts. Facts, 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 facts. <laughs> That's today's song. It is going to change every episode. I like that. Today's fun flipper fact is continuing on the feeding theme, but moving away from the mouth, be it a toothed mouth or a baleened mouth, and all the way down the esophagus into the stomach. We are talking whale stomachs, people. And at first glance, this probably doesn't seem particularly interesting because you know I don't actually think a whole lot about my stomach unless I have a tummy ache and then all I want is for it to feel better (laughs) so I tend to not care a ton about the internal anatomy of most other creatures I had to learn enough about it in school and then I forgot most of it including this fact although I don't actually know that I did learn this in school because I feel like it may have stayed with me so we're talking about the number of stomachs or more specifically stomach compartments that whales have as humans we are bestowed with only one stomach which is I mean probably for the best based on how full my stomach feels when I eat mac and cheese But whales tend to have between two or three compartments in their stomach. Their stomach systems, really their whole digestive system, is similar to that of cows or hippos, really any of those sorts of animals living on land that have compartmentalized stomachs in order to help with digestion. And while that in and of itself is interesting, I grant you, What I am going to tell you in our fun flipper fact this episode, I think is going to blow your mind. And this is about the number of compartments that beaked whales have, specifically the Baird's beaked whale, which has not one, not two, not three, but up to 14 stomach compartments. What? What? (laughs) I'm confused. Yes. So they're, they're categorized. There are four categories of stomachs in a beaked whale. And this actually goes for all beaked whales, not just the bears, although the bears just kind of take it out of, out of control. There is the fore stomach, which then leads to the main stomach, which is connected to the stomach chambers. They are connected to the pyloric stomach, the end. <laughs> and ultimately, again, all of these stomachs are eating in digestion. But with Baird's beaked whales, 
they have multiple compartments in each of those stomachs, totaling between 11 to 14. So the total number of stomach compartments does not just vary beaked whale by beaked whale, it actually varies whale to whale based on individuals. There is a link I'm going to include in the show notes to an article where they were assessing 30 specimens of bared weak whale and all 30 of those specimens had between 7 and 14 stomachs. So weird, 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 weird. And the even weirder thing is that no one knows why. Absolutely no idea. Not even the theories that have been published anyways out there. I'm sure there is somebody who's studying this who really does have a theory. In which case, if that's you and you're listening, please tell us. I would love to know why you think Baird's beaked whales have 14 stomachs. <laughs> but their diet isn't significantly different from that of other toothed whales, uh, especially dolphins, which usually only have about two chambers in their stomach, sometimes three, but again, mostly two. So why they just went up by a factor of that many... I don't know, Oops. but it's cool, and that's why it's this week's fun flipper, this month's fun flipper fact. Okay, science, wow. Um, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay, it is time for our whale tale, and this uh, episode's whale tale comes to us from a friend of the podcast and longtime whale tale storyteller, Catherine. Yay! Thanks, Catherine. Before we get into the tale, we did want to give a disclaimer. This is a tale about a hunt, and although we have been focusing on baleen whales this episode, this is a, an orca hunt, and the spoiler alert, the prey does not survive. Everybody's got to eat. It's a thing, and, you know, most animals eat other animals, but given that the prey in this story is a good and cuddly harbor seal, if that's not your bag, that's okay. You can fast forward a little bit into the next section of our episode and you can learn more online if it is your bag. So take it away, Catherine. When Nicole at Whale Tales asked me to, uh, to do this, to talk about a hunt, a, cor- a killer whale hunt, the one incident that I knew I had to talk about was an uh, incident where I was actually looking into the eyes of the prey species, a seal. But let me, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me uh, set the scene here. Our cast of characters is uh, myself, Catherine Taylor, and Captain Dennis. Our vessel is the Quick Change 2, a uh, full boat. We had 23 passengers on board. The rest of our cast of characters are our transient orca, or Biggs Killer Whale families, the T-137s and the T-124As. Uh, the T-137s consist of uh, the matriarch, Loon. She was born in about 1984. Uh, her son is T-137A, a very large male. He was born in 2002, and he has the nicknames both Jack and Barb, and I am sure you will be hearing lots of stories about Jack. Uh, we also have uh, T-137B, uh, She that one was born in 2006, that's Tempest, but we don't know if that one is a boy or girl yet. And we also have T-137D, born in 2012, nicknamed Wright, but again, we don't know if it's a boy or girl. The T-124As at that time consisted of uh, the mother of that particular family, what T-124A, Kiwake, uh, born in about 1984, same as Loon, interestingly enough. And uh, her daughter is T124A3. She was born in 2006. Her nickname is Wasini. And T124A4 Sabio is of an unknown sex, born in 2010. Now, since this 
date, uh, Bosini had her first baby just last year, a boy who is still yet to have a nickname, and Kittywake uh, had another baby, a son, in 2016, nicknamed Jason, but at that time this family uh, was two less than it is now. Uh, this occurred on July 5th, 2014, and just located a little bit north of Thetis Island, if I remember correctly, somewhere in the Southern Gulf Island area, but definitely in that kind of more northern pit of the Southern Gulf Islands. Uh, I do remember that day, the sea conditions were, um, it was a little bit really, a little bit of a wind creating some, no white caps, but just a little bit of a gusty chop on the top. Pretty nice actually. However, uh, it was gray and cloudy for July. It was kind of a, a meh day. Anyway, let's go on to our story. We had actually found the whales, the 137s and the 124As in that area. And they were doing kind of what whales do, continuing on their day, doing a typical travel pattern. Uh, we were able to shut down while they milled a little about us a little bit, just off of our stern. So we had engines off when this occurred. I noticed uh, just off of our starboard side, a seal, one of those marine mammal eating orcas favorite snacks. And everyone was looking at the whales, uh, roughly about 120 meters off of our stern, but I was looking at the seal. So I'm thinking, well, the way these orcas are acting to stop traveling and milled around, maybe they're gonna start a hunt. So I had my video camera with me and I started filming the seal, not the whales. And as I am looking right at the seal, looking at me, very curious and probably oblivious to the, uh, the predators, the danger, wham, really fast, no warning. Either one T124A Kittywake or possibly T124A3 Wasini made this pounce on the seal. And it wasn't so much of a pounce, it was going right through it. All of a sudden, big splash, whale, seal is gone, and we didn't see the seal again. I was pretty sure that seal was doomed just looking at it. And uh, with seven orca present, they must have had, they must have made really short work of it. We, it, it was gone very quickly. Now, Though I have seen many hunts, both on seals, sea lions, and porpoises, this is the one I wanted to talk about because I'll never get that close to actually being a prey species for an orca, looking right at that seal at its moment of doom. It, it's a strange thing that there are apex predators in the, in the area, but the one that I was most interested in was the seal. Passengers are like all about the whales, I was all about this, this little seal. Many people are concerned with boat impact on cetaceans, quite rightly, but what made me think of the impact that we had on this particular seal, if it wasn't, was it curious about it? Was it distracted by us? If we weren't there, would it have gotten away? Who knows? Um, there have been so many instances of seals hiding under boats. That's quite possible that if we weren't there, it just would have carried on the day. Would it be more aware of the orca? Who knows? I want to thank uh, Nicole very much for giving me this opportunity to share this story. Hopefully I was semi-articulate and that you enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to being back out on the water, hopefully with lots of more, lots more tales of seals getting hammered by orca and just uh, having a beautiful day out there. Take care and thank you again, Nicole. That was awesome, Catherine. Thank you so much. You can read uh, all of Catherine's stories over on our website. And we also have over 200 stories featuring hunting or feeding uh, on whale tales because it's something that whales do a lot. Mm -hmm. Indeed. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. And it is, I mean, again, I know sometimes it's really hard to watch a really cute animal get eaten, but it's also really cool. Like just... It is really cool. Yeah. And we've got some incredibly, really cool, uh, gory stories on there, but we also have just, uh, we've got a lot of lunch feeding stories, which is a separate tag you can search, uh, for lunch feed. Um, we've just got foraging stories. We've got lots of different ones, but I've also just put up a story about, uh, Australian, Western Australian killer, uh, killer whales killing a beaked whale with <gasps> some pretty awesome photos. So if you're into that kind of thing, look for the hunt, uh, tag as opposed to the foraging tag on when you search for our on our story page because we tend to care less about fish getting eaten go bigger well they get swallowed <laughs> entirely whole so it's less oh, that's true you don't see as much that's true that's a good point all right so summer's coming everybody we actually have had some beautiful beautiful weather where we all live the last couple of weeks and it's making me feel sad because we're still uh, abiding by quarantine in British Columbia and Canada and so we can't really get out to enjoy it but hopefully uh, we will all continue to stay safe in the world you our listeners and and everybody everybody around you but also hopefully we will be able to leave our houses soon that'd be great <laughs> Um, and if you are lucky enough to live near the water and your quarantine regulations are being lifted or at least pulled back, then you might be able to get out on the water soon. And we are both jealous and excited for you. <laughs> so if that is the case, one of the things, of course, that we want to make sure everybody's remembering as we head into the summer season is that, well, you can be socially distant while we're watching her. <laughs> No, but also that you should always be socially distant from whales. So regardless of where you live, there are definitely regulations around how far away you need to be from cetaceans in your area. Here in British Columbia, just a couple of weeks ago, there were new interim measures put into place to help protect the endangered southern resident killer whales along our coast. And now every boat needs to stay 400 meters away from killer whales in protected spaces. So these regulations are ever changing at least in Canada and probably wherever you live if you're close to the water so please be whale wise and please make sure that you are checking those regulations because even if you knew what they were last year they may have changed this year coming into the summer season so make sure that you're checking your local jurisdictions and that you are sticking to those guidelines to keep you safe and more importantly well equally importantly keeping the whales safe yeah and we just want to remind you that is on all boats whether it's a kayak or a fishing boat or a yacht, if you have a yacht, if you have a yacht, you should really be a $10 patron, let's be honest here. Um, as well we as <laughs> paddle boards, as well as being swimming in the ocean, um, as well as also drones. Mm -hmm. um, there drones. are exceptions, and we're not a podcast about sanctuary measures, so we're not going to get into all of those because they're different depending on where you live. But yes. Check them out. <laughs> yeah, again, yeah, it's not just you in a boat. It's you in all different kinds of... Any kind of um, way that you can be in the water, including drones. So that's a thing um, that still affects the whales, and we still don't know how. So uh, staying as far away as possible, 
is really great with whatever you're doing to interact with them. Also, don't forget that you can report your sightings, whether or not you're on a boat or on land. If you see cetaceans, you can tell people about it. You can tell us about it. That's always great. But uh, don't forget that, uh, that in most areas, there is some sort of scientific research happening around citizen science and sharing uh, where and what cetaceans you're sighting. Uh, you're seeing, for example, here in the Vancouver area, the um, OceanWise at the Vancouver Aquarium uh, does the um, BC Cetacean Sightings Network, and they collect uh, stories, whether you're on a land-based whale trail or just happen to be, you know, down at the beach, um, socially distant from your neighbor, uh, watching some whales. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and this is a citizen science reporting your sightings is a great way that you can help science uh, if you're lucky enough to be near the water, but you can also help citizen science wherever you're from, especially if you're at home. There's a ton of citizen science on the internet that you can help help out with. Um, our friends at Happy Whale do some with fluke matching from the olden days, uh, where you just go in and you identify the um, identifying parts of a fluke, of a fluke, and that helps their algorithm. And then it goes through like the CSI fingerprinting match thing. Um, and helps ident- helps find matches between uh, sightings from the 80s and further beyond uh, to sightings now and helps us tell us tell, tell us what the humpback whales on, along the west coast and also all over the world are, have been doing for the past however long we've been taking pictures of their flukes. Uh, but there's also tons of other ones. You can do ones about uh, critter cams or cameras that are in the safari or all sorts of places of like, do you see an elephant in this photo? Yes, no. And that kind of thing. And that's something that you can do. You can do it with your kids. It's a great way to pass the time if you're bored and you've watched all of Netflix. <laughs> um, and so if you've got kids or family members that you don't live with that you're trying to do fun activities with over the internet, uh, doing like a video chat with a screen share on one of these uh, citizen science mm-hmm. websites could be really fun. I tried it with my uh, four-year-old niece and she was a little bit young. She didn't quite get it. But uh, maybe if you've got um, family members or friends kids or your own kids that you're not with um that are like a little bit older than that you might be able to um yeah do some science and learning and fun together oh yay that's what we're all about so i think that brings us to the end of our episode we will of course have all links to all of those different things that you can do on our what you can do page on our website and in addition to that we would really really love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any episode so please visit our website whale-tales.org and find links to our various social media handles so that you can drop us a line and tell us what you think yeah you can also tweet at us directly i am fhg07 sarah is sarah k given no h because h's are you and nicole is nick f can c-a-n-n you can also head to our site to subscribe to our podcast check out our merchandise learn about supporting us and becoming a patron and read over 800 whale dolphin and porpoise stories and of course if you have seen a citation we would love to add your story to our library please click the share link on our site contact us on social media whaletales.org or email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible encounter just like Catherine did yeah that's whale-tales.org tales like the story not tales like the animal thank you again for listening and for supporting us we will be back in two weeks with a very special orca awareness month mailbag episode if you've got questions especially questions about orcas please send them to us by june 1st you can contact us on all the above ways and we will answer them on the podcast i'm excited about that time to get researching thanks everybody and have a whaley great day